turn to the person next to you or there with you where you may be streaming and say, you will be changed today. Now put your hand over your heart and say this, I'm ready to be changed by the Spirit of God today. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 10. That's our focus for today. You can turn there in the scriptures that you have. I'll be projecting portions of the, well, the entirety of the chapter on the screen. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed ask and expect for your transformative work in us today. We recognize right now that there are things that you desire to work on in us. And we confess and acknowledge that there are things that we desire for you to work on in us. And those, those two lists may not always be the same. So our prayer is, Lord, make your list our list. Let the things that you want to change in us be the things that we want changed in us. And Lord, if there's anything that we want changed in ourselves, whether it's from the look of our face to the, the action of our lives to the words of our lips, if it doesn't reflect a change that you want, we ask that you would deliver us from that perception and that sense and give us peace that in that you are pleased with who we are. And so let us be pleased with who we are in any way in which it is good in your sight. And Lord, anywhere where we think we are right and good, but you see a need for change, liberate us from holding on to who we are right now and allow us to be willing to be transformed to who you want to make us to become. And Lord, where you and I, where you and we know that there are things that you want to change in us, that we want changed, but we find ourselves at that place of struggle or maybe fatigue or worry, that we could never actually make that change or we can never actually do that thing or be that way that you have in your mind for us, give us faith, Lord, to believe that all things are possible in you. And most of all, Lord, as we read your word today, may we be filled by your word and the spirit of your word. Fill us today, Lord Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts and our bodies, our minds and our beings, our homes, our jobs, our work and workplaces with your Holy Spirit. May the anointing of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ, be upon we, your people today, upon all who come to your word today and say, Lord, make me like you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, I did a little bit of review of the first book of Samuel, chapters 1 through 7. We've now progressed actually through uh, 1 through 9. There's, there's a typo there. It should say 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 9. We've now covered in our preaching series over these past several weeks. If you haven't been with us in that, don't worry. That's why I want to make a little bit of a very brief review today. And it's not going to be uh, even as involved probably as last week's, but it's a way of keeping pace, you and I, with what we've been studying or for somebody entering into the sermon series at this point, a kind of opportunity to contextualize you in what the Lord's been speaking to us through his word. Our first message in this series was actually the last message of our summer series on people of patience because the story of Samuel, the ancient prophet of old, really begins with his mother Hannah, a woman who had difficulty conceiving a child. She was barren and though she desperately wanted a child with her husband, she was not able to conceive one. She came to the Lord, and with patient persistence and a desperate desire, she called upon the Lord and offered herself and her child that God would give to the Lord. This was her request. Answer my prayer, Lord, and I'll give to you what you give to me. That's the patience of Hannah. And one of the principles that we can derive from that is this assurance. Will you say it with me? God hears, say this, God hears and answers the prayers of the needy. 
Don't be afraid to be in need because being in need helps bring you to your knees. Being in need helps bring you into worship. Worship helps bring you into readiness, readiness to receive the anointing of the Lord, which is the blessing of his love. Amazing love. How can it be? Just like we sang this morning, that you, my God, my king, should die for me. So I will gladly worship you. You are my king. You are my provider, right? Like, like Brother Richard was just saying to us, God is our provider and our more than provider. He's not only enough, he's more than enough. So bring your not enough to God's more than enough. Bring the whole in your heart to the whole of God. He's a holy God. He'll fill the whole and overflow it. The measure of your readiness to reveal your need is often the measure of your readiness to receive the fullness of the blessing that God wants to give. And God doesn't give in partial measure. It's a flow. When we talk about the anointing of Saul, as we will do today, we are talking about the flow of the Holy Spirit, a cascade, a waterfall, a lifeline, a pipeline of God's power and provision. And it comes to those who are in need. Jesus said, blessed are you if you have a need because God is here to meet your need. Bring your need to him and he will bring himself to bear on it. Now, what we've seen in that process, in our study, in our lives, is that that involves faith and faith involves patience. We looked at the life of Samuel, the little boy that God granted to Hannah, and Hannah followed through on her commitment to God. You give me the son, I'll give him back to you as a priest in your tabernacle. I'll let him be raised by the people in that tabernacle. She still loved him, cared for him, came, brought a little coat that was measured for his growth every year. But Samuel was being raised in the house of the Lord, but there were priests there who even though they were in the service of God, they weren't in the spirit of God. You see, they had the appointment to serve in the capacity of a priest, but they didn't have the anointing of the spirit. They could have, they rejected it. They refused the anointing of the Lord because they preferred to reach out and grab for themselves. And so they were impatient and they were not spiritual but carnal-minded. What God was looking for was a patient priest one who would faithfully follow the admonition of the Lord, who would faithfully follow the word of the Lord, not just know it and read it, but understand it and believe it. Do it, show it, share it. That's the kind of priest and prophet that Samuel would become, a patient priest who patiently trusts the Lord. Will you say that? A faithful follower, say this with me, a faithful follower of God patiently trusts him. That'll be the description of you if you're going to be faithful. So if there's something where God is trying your patience now, hallelujah, that means it's your opportunity to be more like the Lord. It's your opportunity to be transformed into a more patient, faithful, trusting person and an attentive servant because an attentive servant is a follower of God who listens for God and listens to God, listens for him and to him. Will you say this sentence with me? An attentive follower, let's say it. An attentive follower of God listens for and to God. What, what's it, why, why do I put for and to? Am I just in love with words? Well, I do like words. And I'm not known for my brevity. Somebody's looking up brevity right now. It means I say I use 50 words when two would suffice. But here, two are useful, or three, for and to him. To listen for God is related to, but subtly distinct from listening to him. What's the difference that I have in mind here? Listening for God means that you pause to attend to God. That when you can't pause, when you are at full scale, full tilt, full speed, your ears are still open, your eyes are still looking. We've said last week that the prophet of God, which is Samuel in this case, but others that God anointed as prophets were called in those days what? Seers, or literally, seers. Take the word see and add an R on the end. And that's what they were called, a seer. One who looks around and sees God in the world. Sees God at work. Do you know people, are you a person who says, well, I can't see God doing anything. 
That's because your eyes have not been opened by the Spirit. It's not because God isn't doing anything. It isn't because the Spirit isn't moving. It's because your eyes aren't seeing. Eli, one of those priests of the Lord who hadn't faithfully raised up his sons to follow him properly, was a man who went blind in his old age. Now, that can happen to anyone, but when it happened to Eli, the story is telling us something, that even a man who was appointed to serve but not walking in the anointing of the Spirit was going blind in the world because the one who was supposed to see what God does and share it was becoming blind to who God is because he was more concerned with his own ways. Samuel is one who sees and shares what God does because he's listening for God. He's looking for God. Now, that's for God, right? Looking for God, listening for God. So what's the difference between that and listening to God? It means it isn't enough simply to hear. It isn't even enough simply to see. It needs to change us. God's activity, God's words, God's spirit should have a defining role in our lives. If we look and see everything that God is doing and there's no transformational change in us, we might say, well, that's it. I've arrived. I'm perfect. And if that's you, please come and visit us because you should be up here preaching the sermon, not me. I haven't arrived yet. If you've not arrived at the perfection God has for you yet, raise your hand. Please, everyone in the room, raise your hand. Please, everyone at home, recognize and acknowledge you've not yet. I mean it. Raise your hand. Are you perfect yet or not? If you're not, raise your hand. Hands up are not perfect people, and that's all of us. Now, listen, why do I make a point of asking you to raise your hands? Well, first of all, why wouldn't you? Didn't I say we praise God and worship him with our hands? And when we are saying, I'm not perfect, that's another way of saying, I need your help, God. And what did we say? The needy are the ones who are anointed. See, people who think they don't need God's help often don't get it. And they really don't get it. <laughs> I mean, they don't get God's help and they don't get what's going on in the world. And they look around and say, I don't see any God. But if they would lift up their hand and say, but I'm blind, and what I need is the God who I know is there to come and open my eyes, then you would see. Because then you would know the truth, and the truth would set you free. Free to do what? To do the will of God. To do what God wants you and I to do. You say, well, pastor, I try and I try and I try and I struggle and I fail. Then ask God to change you because you're not done yet. Because he's not done with you yet. So it's good news to listen for and to God. We think, well, I'm afraid of what God's going to say. He might want to change me. He does want to change you. That's the good news, that he wants to, that he can. And how will he do it? Through his love. It's his love that transforms. God leads with love. Will you say that? God leads with love. So listen for it. When God corrects you, it's out of love. If God wants to change something in you, it's because he wants to help you, not to hurt you. He knows the plans he has for you. They're good. They're not evil. They're for your future. They are for the hope. But the glory of God's goodness seemed to have departed from Israel because Israel had turned away from God. Now, Samuel had not turned away from God. And so at an individual level, the glory of God's presence was still very much there with Samuel. And the vision of God's sight was still seeing all that was going on in Israel. But what do we see in this story of history? That the Ark of the Covenant, which was understood as symbolic of and, and even a, a, a sacramental, if you will, representation of God's presence in that nation, had left the nation. Their enemies had come and stolen the Ark and taken it away. And those unfaithful priests like Eli and his sons, they all died on the same day. And so 
The people said Ichabod, which means God's glory has departed. The people were saying, oh, God has abandoned us. But what you and I saw in the scriptures, if we'll see through the eyes of the Spirit, is that it was the people who had abandoned God. And what God was doing was revealing the consequences of their turning away. But his grace still continued to reach out to them. And so ultimately, the call of the Lord through his spokesperson, Samuel the prophet, was return to the Lord with all your heart. Return with a heart of worship. But even in this, we saw the behavior of the enemy people around Israel, who when the presence of God was with them, what did it produce? First of all, God tore down their idols, literally. Remember Dagon? The statue falls and breaks on the, on the boundary place of their temple. God is saying, there is no other God but me. And then there's plague that breaks out. We think, well, I don't want the God to come close to me if it's going to be plague and death either. But what's happening there is the presence of God being with them is revealing the reality of the consequences of their sin. The death that happens while God's presence is in the Philistine nation is a death that was not produced because of God's nature, but rather was the result of theirs. You see, where there is sin and sinfulness, where there are hearts turned away from God, there's going to be death. And so the enemies of God's people who had stolen this ark said, we don't want the ark. That was their response to what God was showing them. God was showing them, you are deserving of judgment. But this is the same God who says, if you would come and trust in me, you will receive what you don't deserve. You'll receive forgiveness. You'll be delivered out of that judgment. But they didn't want that. They just said, get away from us. And that's one way that people can respond to God. Get your presence away from me, God, because I don't want anything to do with this. Now, when the presence of the Lord comes back to the people of Israel, what do we see? The same results in Israel that had occurred in the, in the Philistine country. The ark of the Lord was there. They were rejoicing. They did their ceremonies, and then people died. Why? Again, look at it as from this perspective, and perhaps it makes more sense. The death was occurring because of their sin. The death was revealing the results of their disobedience. They were happy to have the ark come back, but they hadn't turned their own hearts back. And so where that heart is turned away from the Lord, it's like the planet turned away from the sun. It's steeped in the dark of night. It's like a corpse dug deep into the grave. To turn away from God is to turn away from life. What God was showing the people was, when the light of my life is present, is present the death of your sin becomes visible. He was showing them the results. And so Samuel helps the people finally to understand the way to return to the Lord is not just with superficial ritual. Even the Philistines had that. That's not true and worthy worship. It's not that the ceremony and the sacraments don't matter. It's that they need to be plugged in to the Spirit. What makes worship real? The anointing of the Spirit. The presence of God that puts sin to death and brings life to mortal beings. You see, when you and I enter into the worship of the Lord with a sincere heart, in the fullness of the Spirit, we can experience God putting to death those things in us that need to die and resurrecting in us those things that he wants to live. The things of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and the ability to control ourselves according to God's guidance. Those are the fruit of the Spirit and they come to anyone and everyone who is ready to worship the Lord and receive what God has to give. Real worship involves dedication of one's heart. Will you say that? Real worship involves dedication of one's heart. So after all of this, what should the people of Israel in ancient times have learned? What should you and I have learned by this point? I want God to be my king. You are my king. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to bring my needs to you. When I come to worship you, I don't want to just worship according to the ritual of what I've known. I want to worship you in the spirit of your truth and with all that I am. 
I want to worship you in my home and in the sanctuary, in my car and in the workplace, in the factory, in the hospital, in the classroom, in my relationship, in my marriage, with my kids, with my parents, with my friends, with my neighbors. Everywhere, I want people to see the kingdom of your light and life shining through me because I'm one of your subjects. You are my king. That's what they should have come to. But what did they come to instead? Give us another king. Give us a human king that our enemies can see and be afraid of, that can ride out into battle in front of us. We want to be like all the other nations around us. What are they doing? God is saying, I want to show you that you already have a king, and it's me. And they're saying, no, we don't want to see that. We want, we want a king that we can see in the flesh. Now, that is part of God's plan to begin with. Not only to place a Davidic line on the throne and the dynasty of David, who is to come, but most importantly, to introduce us to Jesus, who introduces us to God. Because Jesus is himself the manifestation of God in the flesh. But the reason that the people were asking for this was not because they wanted to worship the Lord and know him better, but because they wanted to be more like the people around them who not only know the Lord, or don't know the Lord, but reject him. So their heart was wrong. And yet the Lord also said, I will satisfy your request. Because the Lord had a deeper and better purpose. I take comfort in this. Sometimes you and I have asked things from God, and he said no, and it's better for you that he said no. But sometimes he said yes to something that even he was saying, that's not really what you need, but I'm going to give it to you. And when he does that, he doesn't do it to mock us, and he doesn't do it to hurt us. It's because he knows I've got something better in store for you. But there'll be a lesson along the way. There'll be a point of revelation. There'll be a way of seeing that even though God gave us what we wanted, ultimately he fulfilled what he knew we needed. And along the way, he taught us a lesson. If you and I can take any lesson from these first ten, nine chapters of 1 Samuel or from the whole book of the Bible at all, it's probably this. God is to be enthroned as king in our hearts and in our lives. Say that. God is to be enthroned as king in our hearts and lives. So God has come to a place where he has warned the people through his prophet Samuel that if you ask for a king, you're going to get a human king. And a human king is going to make demands and take taxes and, and enlist people and do recruitments and there's going to be a draft and you're going to lose sons and daughters to his service. If that's really what you want, I will give that to you. And the Lord still reserves the right to select that man. And that is, in fact, what they're asking for. They're saying to the prophet Samuel, seek the Lord for a man that you can anoint as king. And that man is going to be Saul. Now, we met Saul last week as we got to chapter 9. The story of Samuel anointing Saul follows immediately on the heels of what we studied together. Remember that Saul was just a young man. He was very tall and broad-shouldered and handsome this sort of athletic, warrior-like model of a man. And so he really stands out in appearance. He's the kind of guy that other people would look at and say, wow, he looks like he should be king. But he's also a rather meek and mild man. He doesn't see himself that way. And in fact, that aspect of his humility may very well be one of the key determining factors in the eye of the Lord for choosing him. I can only speculate. But we know that the Lord has said he will elevate the humble even when he brings down the proud. So there's a kind of humility. And even though uh, that's good, I would go so far as to say there is a kind of timidity that seems to appear in Saul in these early uh, days uh, in which we're introduced to him in the scripture. So he's from a, a very modest tribe, a small tribe, not a significant uh, tribe. He, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the tr uh, a clan that is small and, and modest in that, at least in his eyes. And if others would say, well, he's just sort of uh, demurring here, that may be the case. But he doesn't present himself as grand and, and grandiose, but he does look good under a crown, apparently. So the Lord says, this is going to be the one. Now, he went out, Saul, looking for his father's lost flock. There were goats 
from the herd of his father that had gone missing. And so Saul took a servant and went looking for them. And along the way, they determined, well, we can't find them after days of searching. Let's go talk to the man of God. Let's find the seer. Maybe the seer can see where the goats have gone. And in fact, the seer can. Samuel the prophet says, yeah, not only do I know where the goats are, they're already found. They're already back with your father, and your father's now worried about you. But there's something else afoot here. God has plans for you. You're going to stay with me. There's a grand meal prepared. There's a gathering of the people in this holy place because everybody's gathered for a special sacrifice. And you're going to have the seat of honor and you're going to sleep on my roof tonight, which is the best place for a guest to sleep in the ancient Near Eastern world. And the next morning, Saul says, excuse me, Samuel says to Saul, you're going to be king. The Lord has appointed you and I'm going to be anointing you in reflection of the fact that the Spirit is anointing you, Saul is going to be anointed by Samuel with oil. It's actually the first instance in the scripture of the oil of anointing being applied to someone other than a priest in Israel. Because the priesthood had already involved the anointing of oil, which is a symbol of the Spirit of God flowing. Think of all the things that oil does in the natural world, especially in those ancient days, you cook with oil because it can be heated and it can transform raw food into cooked food, food that is able to be processed, that is able to then power your body. You see that transformational symbol of oil there? It's also fuel, fuel for the lamp. It burns and brings light and it's medicinal. Oil was used as an ointment, a balm, like the balm of Gilead, to bring healing and uh, to bring help where there were skin diseases or other injuries. So for these reasons, oil is seen as a profitable and useful and, and, and blessed substance, and God identifies it as a symbolic uh, vehicle for describing the same aspects of his spirit. My spirit will fuel you and give you light, like a lamp to your feet to show you the way. My, my spirit will feed you and transform you and move you from that which is inert to that which is active, from that which is not uh, appropriate and not able to do into that which is ideal and able to do, able to feed, able to empower, and I will heal you by my spirit. And the other thing that oil does is it's visible, and especially in the ancient world when oils like these uh, were often um, uh, made, and even today, in fact, this one has hyssop with it, they had floral or botanical additives that would bring a fragrant uh, perfume to the oil. It would produce, in the natural realm, a visible, a sensible um, awareness of God's presence and of God's touch on a person. So when a priest was anointed in this way, it was saying the priest is reflective of God's power, of God's light, of God's healing, and of God's favor. And it's not something that somebody can just do to themselves. It needs to be an appointment that comes from God and an anointing that flows from him. By having this be also the mark and the measure of a king, the Lord was making clear through the prophet that the king also was not somebody who could just appoint himself. But like the judges that we studied together last year, the king would only be empowered by the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Hebrew term Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed. Christ means the anointed one. The anointing of the priest, the anointing of the prophet, and the anointing of the king all combine in the anointing of Christ because they are all reflective of the presence of God's Spirit and the power of God's Spirit to provide, to transform, to empower, to guide. Now then, you and I, as followers of the Lord, if the Lord is our King, then the anointing that is on our King, which is His very Spirit, flows from Him to us. In the Scripture, there's a description of the anointing that is on the King flowing down his beard, down his robes, and everyone that is under him is in the flow of that anointing. Do you know what it literally means to say that you are a Christian? It's a way of, it's a diminutive of Christ. It's saying, I'm a, I'm a little Christ. You think, well, I, I, I'm, that's not appropriate. I'm not a little Christ. Maybe you feel a bit like Saul. I'm not worthy of that. 
But the Lord says, if you're not worthy of that, then you're not part of me. It isn't your worthiness that allows you to have the anointing of Christ. It's his worthiness. That's exactly the point. To be under Christ is to be under his covering, to be under the flow of his blood that forgives and in the flow of his spirit that provides power and life. So to be a Christian is to be one walking in the anointing of the spirit. Not just to be a little Christ, but to be one who is anointed in the body of Christ. You see, there are many members and each one of us is to be fully anointed in the spirit. That doesn't mean that we take the place of Jesus. It means he took ours on the cross and now he offers us his flow of life and power. So in looking at the anointing of Saul, we're looking at a historical moment for a very singular individual, but there's also a whole plethora of present applications that really speak to you and I today about the provision and the power and the prophetic potential for spiritual transformation that God has made available. It's on offer to you and to me. We have only to ask. We need only to believe. There's also some useful reminders that we can see embedded in this story and that are going to be leading us forward. So in the weeks to come, as by God's grace we continue in this message, Saul is going to become a central figure for us in the story of Samuel. The attention will be very much on Saul, though Samuel continues to be a part of it. And what we will see is that Saul begins well. He starts off with humility. He starts off submitted. He starts off following the things that the Lord through Samuel has spoken to him to do, but he doesn't end so well. And we will see more of that as we progress. And the reason that he doesn't end so well is because he moves away from the disposition of heart in which he starts, and he loses faith and trust in the Lord. At least that's what's evident in his actions. So what what lesson can that hold for you and I? That we need to continue walking daily, daily, every day, in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that in doing that, by reading the word and receiving of the word, by praying and listening for and to God, that means listening for his voice and doing it, and connecting in worship and in study, that these are ways in which you and I as we invite more of the fullness of the Spirit into us every day afresh, can live wisely today, but also prepare by setting ourselves in the position to be directed by God to the place of finishing well, crossing the finish line of the race, as Paul describes, with focus on the Spirit. So this chapter is bookended with anointing, appointing text. It starts with Samuel privately, personally anointing Saul. But the, anoint, the anointing that, that Samuel makes is, of course, merely symbolic and reflective of what God actually does. And we will see that, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, even as the oil of the anointing actually flowed on him, and later on, at the end of the chapter, what was private and personal becomes public and revelational. The whole nation is going to participate in the activity of acknowledging the appointment as king that God has made for Saul. Sandwiched in the middle, we see Saul as we've never seen him before, as no one had ever seen him before. He is prophesying. This humble young man who kind of strikes me a little bit as kind of the jock, you know. He's a muscle man, maybe not a guy of the mind so much. And all of a sudden, he becomes erudite and expressive and artistic in his effusive praise of God and his ability to prophesy with the prophets in the spirit. It's a really marvelous moment. We'll look at it closely together in just a few moments. But in these three sections, I want to suggest that we see something about power and provision which comes from God, the role of prophecy in producing transformation, and finally, proclamation and portents. There are things that are on view at the end of the chapter that help us see where the story of Saul is going, where the story of Samuel is going, and if we are looking and listening, I think they are portents that can help you and I 
to see where we are going and if we need any kind of on-course correction. So part one, the anointing. Remember, Saul has been staying with Samuel, and Samuel has said, let your servant go ahead. I want, I want you to hold back. I need to talk to you privately. Then, that's, chapter, that's verse 1 of chapter 10. Then, that having been done, Samuel takes a flask of olive oil, like this, and pours it on Saul's head, and then does what? Kisses him. Much like the hug that the Lord gave you and I through our own arms this morning, the Lord leads with love. It's the kiss of fellowship. It's the kiss in ancient Near Eastern culture and even in many Middle Eastern cultures today that shows even between uh, two men, there's a welcome here. It's not a sensual or sexual kiss. It is a kiss of friendship, of brotherly love, of affinity and affirmation. It says, you are loved by God. And the man of God is expressing this to the king that God has chosen. Even as you and I felt in our own arms the love of the Lord, I hope you felt that today because that's what the Spirit was conveying. He's saying to you, he's reminding you and I, that's where the anointing starts, in me and in my love for you. It doesn't begin with you. We love because he first loved us. The anointing flows from his love. Samuel says to Saul, hasn't God anointed you? The Lord, Yahweh, has anointed you ruler over his inheritance. This means Israel, his land, his people, and he's anointing you to lead them. When you leave me today, Samuel is now speaking, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. Benjamin is the region of the tribe from which Saul comes. Remember that this place, Rachel's tomb, is on the road to Bethlehem. For those of you who are in the 12 sons of Israel with me, you know that the youngest son of Israel, the last son of Rachel, she only had two, was Benjamin. And she died giving birth to him. They were on the way to Bethlehem. This is um, almost 2,000 years, probably 1,700, 1,800 years uh, at least before the birth of Jesus in human history. And Rachel, who is the wife, one of the wives of Israel, gives birth to this son. She names him Ben-Oni. I've mentioned it before. Son of my sorrow, because she's dying as she gives birth to him. But his father, who loved his mother so much, who loved Rachel so much, loves this child and names him son of my strength. I want you to remember that, that this place where the Lord is saying now, hundreds of years later, and still some thousand years before Jesus is going to come, the Lord is saying, when you get to this place, which you and I know is the place very near where Jesus will be born, and which even Saul knows is the place where Rachel died and where Benjamin, the father of his tribe, was born. When you get to that place of particular loss and sorrow that is also a place of particular strength and provision, that will be where you see the affirmation that you are anointed. That will be where you see that you have been brought to a place of blessing, to wear the crown and to walk the path that I have prepared for you. So these two men, they'll say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father's worried about you. So stop looking for donkeys and and, and come home. What is this? This is affirming for Saul that what Samuel already told him that we looked at last week is true. It's a way of showing this guy really does see. This guy really does know. You can trust what he has to say. You'll go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor which is considered a kind of a holy spot. Trees were often a place for altars and worship in the ancient world and especially before the temple was built. Three men are going up to worship God at Bethel and they'll meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. Now notice that first there were two men and now there are three. And there's something I think you and I can detect here that is a kind of a corollary to other places in the scripture. If you look back, I believe it's in Genesis 18, there are three men that visit Abraham at his tent. And we are told that it's the Lord. The Lord visits Abraham, but it's a company of three men. Whether we interpret that as it's a Christophany, Jesus is there, and there's a couple of angels with him, or whether these are 
um, um, human messenger angels that God has recruited. The scripture doesn't really define for us how those three men represent the Lord. But what it does make us aware of is that this group of three, and many would see, and I suggest that it is there to be seen, a Trinitarian affirmation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not that those three are literally present either in Genesis 18 or even here, but the fact that three men, three persons, are conveying one message of the one God affirms for us that all of God is involved in this and also gives an indicator to Saul. This is a God thing. And it's as big of a God thing as when God spoke to Abraham. It's as big of a God thing as when God brought judgment on Sodom. If you look at Genesis 19, there's two men, two of that three go to Sodom and bring God's judgment upon it and also deliver a lot. If you look at Luke chapter 24, there's two angels at the tomb that tell the women when they come to the place of particular sorrow and loss that is revealed as the place of particular strength and provision, which is the resurrection tomb of Christ. There are two men that say, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's risen from the grave just like he said. So you see, we can look backward or we can look forward. And what we see here is this is a God moment. And when God does things, there's certain recognizable aspects. And one of them is he affirms who he is, that he is the all-wise, all-ruling father, that he is the present savior, that he is the invisible and yet present and active Holy Spirit. In fact, there's two men that have spoken to you and I. Two men who've crossed our path, or maybe it's better to say we've crossed theirs, who say to us, Everything that God, that Jesus said to you is true, now go and do it. And those are the two men in Acts chapter 1, two angels, who again, like in Luke 24, these white-clothed, uh, brightly shining men who are angels, who say to the disciples after Jesus lifts up into the heavens in the ascension, this Jesus who you've just seen left will come back, so now go. Go and spread the word and be his witnesses. You see... Saul was being told and shown by God what I've anointed you to do, I'm appointing you to do, and I will equip you to do. And God has said that to you and I too. Now just because he said it, here's a lesson for you and I from Saul. Don't forget it. Because you can start well by believing it, but if you don't stay on that path, then you risk turning away from the reality of what God wants to do. So these men are to let Saul know that God is doing what he has promised he will do. And look what they have. They have a goat, which is the sacrifice. They have bread and they have wine. The communion table and the sacrificial lamb, as it were, are all symbolically in, uh, aligned here in this anointing. These guys are going to greet you. They're going to offer you two loaves of bread. Like the two tablets of God's word, they're going to offer you this bread, but it's going to be as unto you bread of heaven because it affirms God's word to you. You'll accept it. You'll be provided for, and in that resource, you will go to Gibeah of God. Gibeah means the hill of God. It was a holy place, and it was also where Saul lived. There's a Philistine outpost there, so the enemies are real close to this border area, and that means it's a dangerous place, and it's a place that needs protection and provision. And there is also a group of people there who recognize protection and provision come from God. Will you say that? Protection and provision come from God. That's what the procession of prophets are about. They're worshiping the Lord because they know they have a need and they know that God provides. These are also students or disciples, if you will, of Samuel the prophet. Samuel has started a school of the prophets. In the same way that we have PSOM. So he had a school where people could learn how to listen for and listen to God and how to open to and receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They would be in a procession that was worship-oriented. Lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps. These are stringed instruments and tambourines, and they're going to be worshiping as they go and prophesying, speaking out the goodness of God, declaring the truth of God, calling people to repentance in God. And when you see them, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. Say powerfully. powerfully. It's not a timid thing. 
This has been a timid man, but the strength of God is going to be powerful on him. And then you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. In other words, where you have been insufficient, I will make you sufficient. Where you have not been able to see, I will open your eyes to see. Where you have not spoken these kinds of things before, you will begin to speak them. When you came to Jesus for the first time, you followers of Christ, didn't he change you? Did you ever find yourself starting to say things to other people that maybe before you knew the Lord, people had said to you and you thought, wow, I remember. And maybe you even shared that. I used to hear this from other people and I thought that's ridiculous. Don't give me that. But now I know it's true. Can you relate to that? That's because the spirit changes you. So once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. In other words, you'll know that you're anointed You'll know that you're appointed, and so you know you'll be equipped to do what you need to do. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you, says Samuel, to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days, it's the same period of time as the creation, until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So seven days is a full cycle. It's full circle. So here's an interesting thing I want you to see. Don't, don't tune out on me. You're there and you're, you're with me, Yes? Okay, good. Do whatever you want to do, but you absolutely have to wait for me to come and tell you what to do. But do whatever you want to do, but don't do it until I tell you to do it. But you can do whatever you put to do because the Spirit is on you, but don't do it until I tell you. What do you see there? A kind of tension that you and I ought to be able to recognize, and I think this scripture should help us to acknowledge that it's a good tension. If you are walking in the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God is with you and in you and will give grace and favor to what you say and what you do. That doesn't mean that you can tell the Spirit of God what to do. It means that the Spirit of God is there to tell you what to do. But there's a kind of freedom and liberty and empowerment in the Spirit that God intends. But that freedom and liberty is tempered by also the reality that God says, I have specific things for you to do, I have specific guidance for you, and I want you to follow it. So if somebody says, well, I have the Spirit of the Lord, and that's why I don't follow Leviticus, no, 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 or Romans, blah, 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 because the Spirit has shown me, uh-uh. Because the tension of that is you cannot go and do whatever you want to do and be at odds with God and still be doing it in the Spirit. So when he is told, do whatever your hand finds to do, this phrase here is basically saying, do Whatever the implication is, the word spirit is not mentioned there, but the implication is once you have the spirit, do whatever the spirit guides you to do. Or as Mary says in the book of John, at Jesus' first miracle, she says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And when you do it, you know, if he tells you to fill the clay pots with water, then it'll be wine. You see, Jesus said, ask anything you want and it'll be done. If you ask it in my name, which means in my spirit, but now in the spirit, there's guidance. So the word has guidance and the Lord has guidance and pastors have guidance to offer and teachers and prophets and the people of the Lord, but it's one spirit speaking. So it's very important, and we'll see even more why in times to come, that Saul remembers, don't get out ahead of God. Don't take into your own hands that which God is holding the reins on, but remember that you are in God's hand. As long as you're in God's hand and you're in God's will, then you've got God's power working in and for and through you. But don't take things into your own hands when God has said, wait. What's required here? Wait seven days. You know what's required? Patience. This is why we're in this book, in this season. Patience. I am fulfilling what I promised to do, said the Lord, and I'm going to do it to the uttermost. So, Wait on me, for me. Not doing nothing, do whatever it is that the Spirit tells you to do, but do it in the attitude of patient, faithful, trusting, waiting. Saul turns to leave Samuel, and in that moment, in other words, the very first step of this new life and journey, the Lord changes his heart, and all the signs are fulfilled in one day. Someone out there has been struggling with something, and it's a few of you, and more than one person. 
So I can't become too specific because it's a variety of issues, but it's the same sensibility. I've been struggling with this for so long, and I can't get victory over it, or I can't get free from it, or I can't get to God's guidance on it, or God won't change me, or God won't fix me, or God won't change his attitude so it reflects what I want. Somehow there's a critical issue in your life that you feel is just hopeless, and the Lord is showing you right now in this text, I can change it in a day. And in fact, I already have, says Jesus, because the day I died for you, I changed that situation. Before you were even born, I already changed it. The day that I rose for you, I rose with the solution for that problem in my wings of healing for you. My anointing will set you free. But wait on me for the freedom. I'm not saying wait and do nothing. I'm saying stop trying to solve it yourself and come and lay it at the feet of the Lord. Say, I've done that and I've done that. Do it again. Do it again. Maybe you've never done it. Do it now. Right now, Lord, we put our lives at your feet, in your hands, under the flow of your anointing. All right, I'm running behind. I know that, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Just wait. I'll be finished in seven days. <laughs> Some observations. God's anointing expresses his love. This isn't just fuel at the gas station. This is the love of the Father. Don't commodify God. Just because there's oil that's being used to express the anointing, recognize this. The anointing is God himself, and it's his love. God is love. His anointing is love. The place of loss and pain, the place where Rachel died, the place where Jesus Christ was born, the king of heaven born in a lowly stable, born to die, that is the place that is also the opening of the well of divine provision and strength and resource. So don't be afraid when you come across that place in your walk of life because that's often the place where you will find the greatest breakthrough. And if that's where you are right now, then worship the Lord. Worship invites charismatic anointing. The, the, the charism, the grace things of God is the anointing of God's grace. God's wisdom and strength comes to you in worship. The worship of prayer, the worship of reading and studying the word, the worship of gathering together, the worship with, with the, the, uh, the harp and the, and, the, and the timbrels and the lyres and the pipes and the clapping of hands and the dancing of feet. This invites charismatic anointing because it's a way of opening our hearts to all that God wants to pour out. God's anointing precedes prophecy. So you see, there's a place of need, worship the Lord. As you worship the Lord, you receive of the anointing. As the anointing flows, it will produce prophecy. That is the ability to see, to know, to believe, to speak, to declare, to demonstrate, to do. It is God's power that wills and does in you and I by the anointing of the Spirit. Prophecy is powerful because divine prophecy produces positive change in individuals, in groups of people, in a nation. This nation needs prophets and not people who are out there scratching itching ears or wearing gaudy clothes and driving, you know, super big cars. I'm not trying to tear anybody down, but there's too much of that kind of element of prophecy and not enough of people who would simply say speak Lord your servants are listening now there are such prophets and there are such people but let's be in those let's be among the prophets if God has anointed you and God is preparing you and there's an appointment for you you need to be among the prophets you need to be among the people who see and know and hear and do the things of the Lord so Saul and his servant arrive at Gibeah, and there's the procession of prophets, and the Spirit of God comes upon him. Can you imagine what Saul's servant was thinking? What the heck is going on here? We went looking for goats. We spent one night there. They gave us this great feast, and then all of a sudden, he's a prophet now. And remember, this is his home area. 
When those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they said, what's this? What's happened to the son of Kish? We know this guy. Later on, people will say this about Jesus. Isn't he just the son of Joseph, the, the carpenter? We know this guy. But Jesus said, the prophet is never recognized in his hometown. And there's a man who lives there and says, as the people are saying, is Saul one of the prophets now? And the man says, yeah, who's their father? In other words, the idea was, if you're going to be a prophet, if you're going to be a priest, you have to have a father that was a prophet or priest, right? Like Eli and his sons, or Samuel and his sons. But what did we see about the sons of Eli? What did we see even about the sons of Samuel? They didn't follow their father. But who are those that are following Samuel? The school of prophets. So guess what? It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter what nation you were born in. It doesn't matter what economic status you were born into. It doesn't matter what economic status you've achieved or what nation you've moved to, the color of your skin, the nature of your gender. What matters is, do you belong to God? If God is your father, you are a prophet in the Lord by the anointing of the Spirit. And not to say and do whatever you want to say and do, but to say and do what God wants you to say and do. Is Saul among the prophets? He is today because he's under the anointing of the Spirit. That's what makes a prophet. It's God who makes a prophet. After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. I want you to go to the high place this week. I want you to be lifted up, says the Lord. I want to lift you up on eagles' wings. You who are weary, you who are downtrodden, you who've lost hope, you who are suffering, you who are doubtful, I want to lift you up, says the Lord. Come under my anointing. Let my spirit fill you with purpose, with patience, with power. Now Saul's uncle comes to him and the servant says, where, where have you been? Looking for donkeys, says Saul, which is true. But when we saw that we weren't found, they weren't found, we went to Samuel the prophet. Oh yeah, what did Samuel say to you? Don't you think that the uncle is picking up on something here? You're different. What happened when you were with the man of God? And Saul said, he told us the donkeys were found, but he doesn't say anything about the kingship. This is one of the most interesting parts of the text to me, and I don't really know what's going on here. It's possible that this is the humility of Saul. I don't want to toot my own horn. I've had a private anointing, but we haven't had the public appointing. It may be the fear of Saul, the timidity. I don't want anybody to challenge me on this. Maybe Saul's having a difficult time believing that God did what he did. Or maybe Saul simply thinks, as Jesus will later demonstrate, that when it's not yet time, it's not yet time. I don't know. I can't give you the answer for that. But it's an interesting moment because clearly the change that is happening in Saul is visible to others around him. So, some observations from this section. God's invitation is to all. That doesn't mean that anybody can come into the kingdom. It means that God invites everybody into the kingdom. Many are called, but few are chosen because many turn away. Nevertheless, everyone is a candidate for divine anointing in God. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your age, you can be a spokesperson and witness for God. You can be what God wants you to be. He makes you a candidate. Anyone willing to be God's witness is going to be enabled by God's spirit to be God's servant. That is, if you're willing to give your life to Jesus, Jesus is going to give his spirit to you. That is what he does. He's promised it and he does it. And by God's spirit, you will be equipped to proclaim God's good news. Everyone anointed in the spirit of God will be transformed in and by his Holy Spirit. What's the most common thing that we can say about us? All human beings, we're all born and we all die, right? But even Paul says, when Jesus comes, there may be, there will be still people living on earth. Not everybody is going to die, but everyone will be what? Transformed. What God is doing is transforming that which was lost into that which was saved and the unholy into the holy, but it's only in the anointing. And so finally, there's a proclamation to be made here and some signs for what's ahead. Samuel summons all the people of Israel. So what's been going on has been happening individually with Saul. But look, it's got ramifications for the entire nation. 
Do you realize that what God is doing in your life and your heart today has implications for all the people around you? Not to elevate you into fame. That's not what it's about. Don't get sidetracked with that nonsense. If that's what God wants to do, fine. But here is something you and I can maybe take from Saul. Don't try and put yourself out there as this this great figure. Instead, focus yourself on what God wants to do in you. But recognize what God is doing in you is about more than just you. It changes the world around you for the better. So the nation gathers at Mizpah, the classic place for proclamations and and, uh, decisions at a national level at this time. And he says, this is what the Lord says, I'm the one who delivered you. I'm your warrior. Next week, we're going to look at the incredible warrior that Saul becomes. Here, God is saying, I'm the one that wins the battles for you. I'm the one that delivered you out of Egypt and actually delivered you from every enemy that you've ever had when you trusted in me. But you've rejected me. You've rejected your God, says Samuel, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, appoint a king over us instead, is the idea. So now then, that's what I'm going to do, says the Lord. Present yourselves to me. Samuel says, come present yourselves to the Lord by tribe and by clan. And when they all come forward, they're probably casting lots. And the lots make it clear that the tribe of Benjamin is chosen. And then he brings forward out of that tribe each clan... And Sam, uh, Saul's clan, the family group, Matri, is chosen. And so everybody in that family group is brought forward. And guess who's chosen? Saul, son of Kish. But guess what? They're doing it by name, not by individuals. They've got names you know, on the lots, apparently. Saul's nowhere to be found. Where is he? So they say to Samuel, inquire of the Lord. And the spirit of the Lord speaks through Samuel and says, he's here. He's just hidden among the supplies. He's there in the luggage. You know, he's, you'll find him. They go and they find him. They bring him out and he stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Again, what's going on here? There seems to be maybe humility, maybe timidity. Maybe there's a sense of Saul saying, I'm not ready for this. And maybe he wasn't. In his flesh, surely he wasn't. Just like you and I might say, I'm not ready for this. Remember, it's the spirit of the Lord who equips and enables you. Don't try and do it on your own. Let the spirit of the Lord do it through you. Samuel said to all the people, do you see this man? This is the man the Lord has chosen. There's no one else like him among all the people. And all the people affirm and say, long live the king. So Samuel explains, here's what a king has the rights to. Here's the law. He makes uh, all of this plain and clear, and it's written on the scroll. And then he dismisses the people. And Saul goes back to his home. (laughs) It's sort of like, okay, that's done. There's no palace. There's not a temple built yet. There's not a standing army. It's kind of like, we have a king, but what did it really accomplish? The people kind of felt like maybe it was going to make them into this nation in the, in the sense of how the people around them viewed. And so some of those who did not have faith in the nation were like, well, who is this dude? How is he really going to help us? Look at this. They said to God, give us a king. And God said, I'm your king. No, not good enough. We want a king that the other people can see. Okay, I will choose one. And then when God chooses one, they say, well, we don't like him. Some people are never happy. Remember Jesus? He said, you don't like it when you're like children that you don't want to play funeral and you don't want to play wedding. So what do you want? Make up your mind. But Saul keeps silent. And I will say here that I think Saul's silence here is admirable. Saul is not going to try and defend himself or prove himself. He's going to let the anointing of the Lord show up. And it's going to. And we'll see that next week when he wins a victory. And when he wins the battle as a victorious warrior, then the nation comes around and says, we like this guy. But the problem is, it isn't winning battles. It's the anointing that really makes for the appointing. So as we come to conclusion, some observations. Notice here in this text that God sees what he sees and says what he sees. As the saying goes, he calls a spade a spade. God will not call a spoon a fork. He is going to speak what he sees. Not without love. Always in love he speaks the truth. But with honest frankness about every situation. And he's not fooled. He knows what is in people's hearts. He knows what people's real motives are. Do you know there is so much of our time in relationship with God that we can waste thinking that God is like other people. 
that if we present to him the kinds of things that we present to other people, that he will respond to us the way other people do. But God isn't like that. And you know why? Because God knows. God knows. You can't come to him and say, well, if you only knew my background, I know your background. Well, that's what I said. But what I really meant, I know what you meant. Well, I didn't say, you didn't say, but I know what you were thinking. Well, I've tried and I've tried. I know exactly how hard you've tried and I know exactly when and I know exactly when you haven't. God is not mocked. He's not fooled and he won't be manipulated. And what God says is, what you sow is what you will reap. So if you sow to the spirit, you can reap from the spirit. But if you sow to the flesh, the consequences of the flesh. Unlike fickle humanity, God is not a man that he should change his mind. God is unwaveringly faithful to his words and his plans. So even when you and I mess things up, what God is showing here is, I will still place my man on the throne. I will still rule according to my will and grace. God can be trusted above all. And we say to God, you are our king. You are our king. Jesus, you are our king. Holy Spirit of the king. Rule and reign in our hearts today and every day. Transform us, Lord, where we have held on to wrong ideas or ways. Liberate us and free us. Where we are afraid, make us strong and brave in you. Where we are arrogant or ignorant, then cause us to pause and in humility to pray. Teach us, guide us, forgive us. You have, fill us. You have, you do, you will. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Just raise your hands up to the Lord. Everybody, even if you're at home or wherever you might be streaming, if you're able to, lift your hands up to the Lord. Even somebody who might be driving a car, get to a safe place to pull over and do this. Lift your heart, lift your hands to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus Christ, repeat this after me. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess my sins. I commit my heart into your hands. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Change me in your anointing to be like you. And may your name be ever glorified. Amen. Now let the love of the Lord embrace you.